Navigating the Datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to episode 13 of the Datascape podcast. I'm your host, Chris Presley. Today, we're going to talk about serverless computing, or sometimes otherwise known as functions as a service. Now, if you're a data person, before you change the channel, stick around for 60 more seconds. The reason we're going to talk about serverless computing is because it's very important. It is possibly the next iteration of cloud. And as usual, we're going to come at things from the data-based perspective. And while serverless computing isn't going to replace everything, and there actually are, of course, servers involved, it is, as the next evolution, something we all need to know at least a little bit about. So I searched my network and found an expert who is joining us today. His name is Mike Roberts. Hey, Mike, how's it going? Hey, Chris, how you doing? Well, thank you. Thanks for coming to the show. Thanks for having me on. Can you help our listeners get to know you a little bit and give us a brief overview of your career today? Sure. So I've been in the IT industry nearly 20 years now. Sort of one of some of the most interesting parts of my career are that in the early to mid 2000s, I worked for a company called ThoughtWorks, who are a reasonable sized software consultancy these days. But back in the early mid 2000s, they were sort of really the main pioneers of agile software development in, in the enterprise. And so Martin Fowler, who's a relatively famous writer in the Agile world and one of the original signatories of the Agile Manifesto, joined ThoughtWorks about 20 years ago and really sort of drove them in this way. And I was, so I was working for them in the early mid-2000s. I'm really focusing on, on, the, on the sort of the automation side of Agile. And so we, we would call it DevOps now, but that word didn't exist back in the day. So I was a, a project lead for one of the early open source continuous integration servers. So cruisecontrol.net was something that I ran. So very much, I was very much part of that world, the pre-DevOps DevOps world, as it were. And then I moved to New York in 2006, so 11 years ago, and worked with a few finance firms, worked in ad tech, and again, trying to sort of take what I'd learned in the agile world and you know, apply that to various levels of engineering and management. So I've been an engineer and a CTO and various fun places in between. And then over the last year and a half, I've really been focusing on this whole serverless area, not because I'm somebody that jumps on technological fads, because I really don't normally. But this one I find particularly exciting. And I mostly find it exciting for for some of the interesting sort of people aspects it has, as opposed to the pure technical aspects. But I'm sure we'll get onto that later later in the session. So what does Symphonia do? So Symphonia is my new business that I started with my business partner, John Chapin, at the beginning of the year. And John and I worked together at our last company, and we started using a bunch of these serverless technologies there and used them very, very effectively. We were shocked how useful they were, but they were still obviously very new. And so John and I wanted to do some more with this stuff. And I also wrote an article last year that was incredibly popular on the subject. And I was like, we should do something with this. And so we decided to, to start a, a company. And we, and we thought, considering how new it is and how many people are wanting to understand how this stuff works, especially in combination with the way they currently work. So it's not just Greenfield. How, how does this work in, in, in terms of their existing architectures and their existing processes? We decided to start a consulting business dedicated to serverless and cloud architecture. So we are working with a ton of people and sort of helping them figure out what all this stuff is and what it means and, and how they can use it. We're doing a lot of speaking. So we spoke at like six conferences in six weeks a couple of months ago, doing a lot of writing. So we just had a 
a small book come out with O'Reilly. It's a free download. And so, yeah, whole bunch of really interesting stuff dedicated to this area. Okay, great. And folks, I will link to the free ebook in the show notes so you can get a look at it, as well as the article that Mike's referring to. So I have to ask, how did you, I, I did wiki, you know, what Symphonia means, where, you know, and it talks about basically synergy between the state and the church. So who's the state and who's the church? Neither. And that's not the etymology for us, at least. Okay. For us, it was really sort of a play on the word symphony in that it was, with a symphony, you have lots and lots of different instruments coming together to make a special sound. And for us, one of the things that we see with serverless as opposed to sort of more traditional architectures is that you have a lot of different components and a lot of different types of components and that you merge them together to produce a really interesting architecture. And so that was that was the root of the word for us after about 20 hours of, of scratching our head while, while drinking beers in German bars trying to figure out what to call ourselves. Right. <laughs> and, and probably domain name searches too. <laughs> yeah, it's, just a few. It's really yeah. hard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay, good. Well, I was just curious. So, you know, in, in my audience is, is likely usually much more from the data space, yeah. as I mentioned to earlier. So while I'm sure there's a bunch of web developers who are, you know, certainly very familiar with Lambda and, and similar technologies, a lot of my readers and listeners probably aren't. Mm -hmm. So let's start with the definition. Mm. What is serverless computing? So serverless computing covers a number of areas. And what I've tried to do in my explanation is sort of say, okay, it's the unification of two things which seem quite different at first, but then there are some unifying factors to them. The first half of, of serverless, which is sort of what it's most known for right now, is this thing that we call functions as a service. And Amazon like to call it serverless compute. And this is the idea of writing custom server-side applications but in terms of these tiny little functions that we, we deploy, and we deploy them just by uploading the code of the function to a vendor platform and letting the vendor figure out how to actually deploy that code, how to scale it, full management of the operating system. So you can think about it like platform as a service like Heroku, but with even more abstraction over a running process because we're not running a full-time process with functions as a service. We're just giving a function and we're telling the platform when to call that function. So we tie it into a source event. And what the source events are depend on what platform we're using. So with Amazon, we have about 20 to 25 different types of source event that we can use. And that's anything from message buses to, to time to HTTP requests. We can tie it into an HTTP server called API Gateway. And we can even, you know, just to bring it sort of to the, to the data side, we can use Amazon Aurora, their RDS engine, and use Lambda as a source of triggers. So Lambda is Amazon's implementation of functions as a service. And so we can actually use that as, as triggers with RDS. But obviously, it's normally used for message buses and, and, and web requests and that kind of thing. So it's a really interesting way of developing server-side software because it removes so much of the complexity of running software at runtime. So a lot of that operations goes away. Not all of it. This is not no ops, but it certainly removes an element of system administration that we would otherwise have to worry about. The other side of serverless is what we call backend as a service. And some of this stuff is really new and some of the stuff isn't as new. Backend as a service covers a, a number of things. It covers things like cloud-based databases. It covers things like online user management services and various other things. But the, the point 
sort of the unifying point about backend as a service is that they are components that we incorporate into our application that other people develop and manage on our behalf. And that they they also exhibit certain characteristics in a serverless way, which is sort of where we unify with functions as a service. And I'll get onto in a moment what those unifying, unifying characteristics are. But they are they're these things that we use online rather than having to write ourselves. So, so some good examples of backend as a service services. So on the new end of the spectrum, newer end of the spectrum, we have things like Firebase from Google, which is a fully managed database and application platform now, especially geared towards mobile application developers. So if you're a mobile dev team and you want a server-side database in the cloud and you want a bunch of user management and all user authentication and all that kind of stuff, you can just use Firebase and not have to worry about building your own server-side application on top of it on top of it. You can connect your mobile app directly to Firebase. It's very similar to a thing that used to exist called PARS. And PARS was a product which was really popular with with mobile application dev teams, but Facebook bought it and then shut it down. But Firebase is sort of the natural replacement. The other sort of newer example I like to give with backend as a service are these sort of more logic-oriented things. So one great use case for this is user management and user authentication. So there's a couple of services here I like to point out. One is called Auth0, who are a small company, and they you can just use that to do all of your user management code. So sign up, log in, OAuth, all that kind of stuff. The point being that when we write that code in our apps, it's almost the same every time we do it. And so why do we need to keep re-implementing every time? And so now we can just use somebody else's service on our behalf. So we see there with Firebase, sort of the more database infrastructure-oriented type of BAS, and with Auth0, the more sort of logic-oriented type of BAS. We have actually also some really, you know, some older apps that actually sort of fit in the serverless backend as a service world. One is DynamoDB from Amazon, which just about fits in this world. It's got sort of one caveat on that, which we can talk about later if we want. But the other one is Amazon S3 which people go, well, that's really old. Why is that serverless? And and it is. And it is because it sort of gets all of these characteristics that I like to talk about as being sort of the common things of serverless, which we can talk about those as well. Michael, let's go into those now, because I think it'll help continue. Yeah, so myself, my business partner, John, we were trying to like get a more succinct definition to try and define what is and isn't serverless. And the reason that we wanted to do this was not because it's like, we are serverless and you're not or anything like that. It's just so people get a better understanding of what they should expect when they're using something that says it's serverless. And so when we were racking our brains on this, we we came up with sort of five key criteria about serverless. The first one is sort of the one that people think about most, which is when you're using a serverless process, you're not thinking about long-lived hosts or applications when you're using it. So with functions as a service, I've already talked about that. You're, you're only thinking about an ephemeral function and the platform is worrying about managing the actual process. But it's the same when you're using backend as a service as well. When you are provision, when you're requesting use of a backend as a service, you're not saying, I want three machines running this stuff. You're just saying, I want this. And it's up to the vendor to figure out how to do that. And that sort of leads into so the second key part, which is that when you're using a serverless service, it automatically provisions. So we're not thinking about resource allocation or resource provisioning at all in terms of machines when we're using a serverless service. 
that is all on, again, on the vendor. And the really nice part of that is because we're not provisioning or allocating or resource planning, the underlying serverless service has to scale on demand. And so we start using it and the service is going to have to scale and it does scale. So if we think about something like Amazon Lambda, which is, again, Amazon's main sort of compute serverless compute platform, you can start using it and it will scale up to thousands of parallel instances for you out of the box that you're limited to a thousand concurrent processes, but you can request more than that. But you don't have to do any configuration for it. That just happens. And similarly, when your application scales back down again, all of those things just scale back down on your behalf. You don't have to destruct all of those. And that sort of leads on to the third part, which is that costs are also tied into this automatic scaling. So when you scale up your Lambda usage, you're only paying for when it executes. When Lambda scales it back down again because you've got no load, you're not paying anything. And whether you have a thousand different requests that happen linearly or a thousand different requests that happen concurrently, Amazon will charge you the same. So you're not having to worry about having to, to have lots of parallel machines. So I just want to jump in there real quick. So how can you describe how the billing works Mm-mm, for that yeah. type of thing? Yeah, so with, with Amazon Lambda, you get billed by the 100 milliseconds of execution time. And so another way of thinking about that is when you're using regular EC2 on Amazon, you're paying for an hour of usage of EC2. And if you, if you use it for a minute, you still pay for an hour. Whereas with Lambda, you pay for 100 milliseconds. If you use, you know, if it's going, running for five seconds, you pay for five seconds. You know, beyond compute, so if we start thinking about some of those other services that I talked about, if you think about S3 you pay by how much you actually store, what's your actual file storage. You don't pay for how many network file servers you're running. If you think about DynamoDB, the main part of DynamoDB's costs is around how many requests a second you want. So both you say, I want 500 reads a second and 3,000 writes a second or whatever it is that you want to do. That's what you're paying for, as opposed to anything around you know, specific machines. And the really nice thing with a lot of these services, especially with Lambda, is you know, you're not committing to anything. So if you've got a service that isn't doing anything now or isn't doing anything for the weekend, then you're not paying for anything at that time. And so you get these really nice, very precise costs based upon what you're actually doing, not what you planned up front. So sort of beyond sort of those things, so we talked about not thinking about server hosts, not thinking about allocation or costs. So then it's like, well, okay, so how do you actually say what type of performance configuration you want? And many of these things do offer some amount of performance configuration. I mentioned with Dynamo, you say, what do I want my read and write throughput to be? With Lambda, so the sort of the pure compute idea, you say how much RAM you want. So with Lambda, you can have up to one and a half gigabytes of RAM. So you can go anywhere from 128 megs up to one and a half gigs and various bits in between. And when you do that, your actual your CPU and your I.O. performance actually scale proportionally to that. So you have one dial and you can basically ratchet up and ratchet down the performance dial. Mm-hmm. The point being that none of those performance configurations are defined in terms of host size or host count. So we're not thinking, again, we're not thinking about machines, whether virtual or physical here at all. That is completely abstracted to us. It's up to Amazon or the vendor to figure out, OK, are we going to run 100 Lambda functions on one big machine? or 10 Lambda functions on 10 small machines, we don't know, we don't care. That becomes their problem now. So we've outsourced that problem to somebody else. 
And then the final sort of aspect, which is sort of different to all of these and, and was sort of a surprise when we were thinking about it, it's like, oh, yeah, that's, that's a thing, is that serverless services have implicit high availability at the service level. So I like to give the example here of S3 again. <laughs> so when we use S3, we're not thinking when we're using it about individual storage nodes, file servers, whatever you want to call them. So when we're using S3, we just upload our files and download our files, and that's great. If an individual storage node goes down, we never think about it. We never have to worry about it. That's Amazon's job, and they give us this implicit high availability at the storage node level. Now, what we're not saying is that there's implicit disaster recovery. So if Amazon, for example, were to lose an entire region of S3, which may happen like it did two months ago, <laughs> we still have to code around that. We don't get that for free. And we have to still think about, okay, how do we, how do we deal with that? What's our multi-region strategy and blah, blah, blah. But we still don't have to worry. We still get this implicit high availability. And, and we see that in most serverless services that we've seen. We think that's an important part. And again, it's because you're not thinking about individual hosts or processes. Right. It's easy to see the attractiveness when you break it down across those five factors. I can really see the attractiveness as you know somebody kind of more from the infrastructure side, you know, having those conversations with developers trying to sort out the size of a machine and then adjusting it and no, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. No, it's the database because it's always the database. So I can certainly see the attractiveness and 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 not managing, you know, deployment of executables or com objects or DLLs and. I really like the example that you gave there of user logins, because that's something that relational databases do very poorly at. I don't know if you've ever looked at the old ASP state database years ago, you know, running on SQL Server, it was a, they would track the session state for IAS sessions oh, in yeah, a relational no, database. And they were always, you know, if you had any load at all, there'd be blocking locks like crazy. They just don't do it well. So I can certainly see the attractiveness. Now you mentioned DynamoDB as a data source, and you mentioned kind of some of the really new databases. In our previous episode, we introduced Cosmos DB, which is an mm -hmm. Azure answer, newer implementation of DynamoDB. Do you see the serverless functions or serverless, I'm probably butchering it, but serverless functions interacting with more conventional databases or is it only these new non-relational databases? Yeah, it's a good question. I was actually watching a video yesterday of my, my old friend, Sam Newman, who's written a book on microservices that's pretty popular. We worked together about 12 years ago and he was actually giving a video about serverless and he was sort of bringing this up as, what the heck, serverless plus SQL. And the short answer is yes, you can, you can absolutely use things like Lambda functions with a SQL database. There's, there's, no, there's nothing to stop you. And we've seen people do that. And we're actually big fans of what we, we call a hybrid architecture. Like, you, know, you don't have to go fully serverless top to bottom at all. And most people don't. Most people are, are bringing serverless in at some point in their stack and growing the use of it. And they end up with some parts of their, their ecosystems being fully serverless, but Hybrid architectures with serverless are a real thing. And anyone that says they're not, that's not the way to do it, it's like, no, that's, you need to be a little bit more pragmatic than that. The, the key part to building hybrid applications with serverless and non-serverless uh, components is understanding the scaling differences between parts of your stack. And the classic example here that we talk about, actually, is with Lambda and a SQL database. So you have Lambda, and right now, when you use Lambda, Amazon will just scale it out as wide as it needs to be. And so if you suddenly get a massive amount of traffic and your Lambda scales out a thousand wide, 
and you're just talking to one database, then you may have real, real problems there. And so at some point in your stack, you want to have some amount of limiting component there. And, and that might be above the Lambda. You might not put your Lambdas directly downstream of, of a client. You may have a component in front of Lambda that, that, does, that, that does your load limiting for you. You may have it sitting between the Lambda and the database. You may, so you may introduce a, a third service in the middle there. And so you might not have the Lambda communicate directly with the, with the SQL database. You might have it connect to a, a regular, some kind of microservice, and then let that microservice be, be the limiting point. So yeah, you can use a SQL database from Lambda. I wouldn't call it directly from Lambda unless I had some kind of upstream throttling component. I hope eventually we'll have more control of scaling of our functions as a service functions, and then this will be less of a concern. But from a programmatic point of view, there's, there's no reason you can't connect directly to a SQL database from, from a Lambda function. Are there other strategies that are commonly used to persist storage then in Lambda or serverless architectures? Yeah, and I think it depends on sort of what you're talking about. So sort of one, two sort of common use cases of, of full applications that are implemented in serverless. One is, you know, an easy thing to think about, which is a website or a web API. If you are concerned about scaling there, then putting a, a serverless NoSQL database on the back end is a very common thing to do. But there's another type of use case for Lambda, which is even what I'm, I'm used to and is even more sort of appropriate for technology, which is this sort of asynchronous processing idea, especially for a data pipeline or some kind of ETL where you have an implicit asynchrony going through your entire application. And at that point, you know, you have some really interesting options. You can write to a file storage like S3. You can write to a large-scale message bus like Kinesis. Or even if you're not talking about much data, you can talk, you know, write to smaller message buses like SNS or SQS. And so we find that where you have this idea of, of a data processing pipeline, you have a number of options of areas that you can write to. You're not always using a database. And so, yeah, a lot, lots of different things you can do there. Okay. You touched on a couple of points that I wanted to kind of break down a little bit as I was trying to understand what does serverless mean because I was, you know, I've written functions myself. I'm not a programmer, but I have. And, you know, I'm thinking like, okay, where's that code running and when does that code run? And as I researched for this episode, what I found was that, that a lot of the serverless code is executed, in fact, by triggers. Mm -hmm. So they're, you know, and those triggers can be a bunch of things. And I think that most DBAs understand triggers because obviously we have triggers on tables, but triggers are really events. So could you outline a couple of, of, of very common events that instantiate serverless code? Yeah, absolutely. And so the where I, I really got started using serverless apps with my teams was using message buses as the trigger. So in the Amazon world, as I said, you've got Kinesis, which is their version of Kafka. But you also have SQS, which is their regular sort of standard event queuing, message queuing system that you would think about, like RabbitMQ or something like that in the open source world. And they also have a system called SNS, Simple Notification Service, which is was a sort of, people think about it as being a, a text messaging and email notification service, but it's not. You can use it internally as a sort of a relatively low volume pub sub message system. And you can use all of those as, as event sources into Lambda. You can use S3. So if you upload a file to S3 or change a file in S3, that can be used to trigger a, an event in Lambda. And that's sort of one of the original examples, which people still use as a, as a case study, is if you want to do file processing, so some amount of media manipulation, 
So someone uploads a big video file and you want to convert that, you can just say, okay, well, when someone uploads a file to this S3 bucket, then we're going to run a function to do some processing. That's a very standard thing to do. And then one of the other ones I mentioned earlier was HTTP requests. So that can actually cause an event. So you can use a component in the Amazon world called API Gateway, and the other vendors have, have equivalent things of this, where you can say, hey, I'm going to build a web API and the thing that's going to do the, the processing after the HTTP endpoint part is going to be a Lambda function. And then, of course, one of the other ones I like to use is time. You can you know, substitute cron for a scheduled Lambda or you know, at in the Windows world, if it's still at. I can't remember. It's been a while since I've done Windows administration. So that idea of having scheduled events, you can do that there as well. And there's a whole, whole other ton of things that you can do, including, as I said, actual triggers with RDS Aurora from Amazon. Okay. So you've mentioned Lambda a lot, and that's, you know, that's Amazon's take on things. What are the competing services from the other, mm. the other two? Yeah, so you've got Google Cloud Functions, which is still in beta, but you know, Google are a bit different about how they think about production versus beta. So how long was Gmail in beta? And we were all using it. So Google Cloud Functions is in open beta now. I know some people that are successfully using it in production. I haven't used it in production myself, so I'm not going to say go use it in production. But if you're, a, if you're a Google Cloud Platform user, then you definitely want to take a look at that. Microsoft have Azure Functions. And that's in production now. They're doing some really interesting stuff there. Microsoft came to, so there was a serverless conference in Austin. So it was all the you know, people that are involved, interested in this area all got together in Austin about six weeks ago. And all the big players were there, but Microsoft definitely came out in full force, which was really interesting to see. They have an interesting take on some of the backend as a service stuff as well. So yeah, certainly Azure Functions is a big deal there. And then beyond the big three, you have some other interesting stuff going on. So IBM have had a, at functions as a service implementation for a while called OpenWhisk. You have some smaller vendors. So Auth0, who I mentioned earlier, that make the user management product, also have a thing called Auth0 WebTask, which is the world's easiest functions as a service platform. It's really, really well done. I mean, obviously, it doesn't have that sort of enterprise integration scaling thing that the others have, but as a, as a doing small thing thing, it's amazing. You can get started and be writing Slack functions in no time. It's, it's really, really impressive. And then, of course, the open source world is really starting to heat up as well. So just like we saw Cloud Foundry come along and really be the, the default, de facto open source PaaS, and OpenStack really is the default open source infrastructure as a service, I expect that we'll see a default open source functions as a service implementation at some point. But there are many, many open source projects right now. And so it's sort of hard to tell which one is going to be the winner. Right, right. Yeah, that's the challenge. And you mentioned the word production there. So and with this type of thing, I was kind of wondering, you know, is this widely used and adopted in enterprise yet? Or is it still startups or? What's I mean, it's, it's still pretty new. So if you think about the fact that Amazon Lambda only came out at the end of 2014, and that first version was really, really raw. But you know, Amazon like going into production very, very soon. That's, that's their style. And so this stuff is, is in some ways is pretty new still. On the other hand, there are a ton of companies using this stuff at scale. I mean, the, the, the company I used to work for a year ago, we were using this in production, and sort of by the end of the year, they were processing a billion events a day with this kind of stuff, which is not huge data, but it's, you know, it's getting on towards medium size. 
And, you know, we, there's definitely a ton of people are using this stuff. There's a website called Bustle, who are pretty, you know, reasonable size website. They are entirely serverless. Their entire stack is, is using these technologies. And so, yeah, there are definitely companies using it. It's, it's interesting, you know, people say, oh, so what, which, you know, especially because I'm in the consulting world, like what verticals are using this and what you know, size companies are using this? And it's actually, it's really hard to categorize it by size of company or vertical. It's really about attitude towards technology is whether people are using this stuff or not. You know, are you willing to roll your sleeves up a little bit because some of this stuff is not good documentation around or at least not good best practice documentation around it? Are you willing to sort of experiment and see what works for you? And if you are, then people are going to try this out. And that might be a startup or it might be a, a significantly sized company. Okay. And that makes sense. In fact, you just called me out on something I called someone else out on earlier today. We were talking about the effort to support a potential customer and tying in the hours to do that support to the number of machines that they had, but they're cloud-based. And, you know, I said, guys in the cloud, it doesn't today that number could be vastly different from tomorrow. And I, and, and, you know, to what you just said, you know, we have to stop thinking about it that way. And, you know, if anything, we probably want to taking a, you know, kind of a page out of the DevOps book. You know, if you're trying to do what your, your competitor is doing, you've already been beaten and you'll be continuing to beat. So if they aren't using serverless in your vertical, you should, and you're in that vertical, you should probably get on it right away. Also in preparation, you know, after we met and started discussing putting this episode together, I did watch your or one of your O'Reilly conference talks. And folks, I'll, I'll link that up in the show notes as well. You do need to be a full paid member of Safari O'Reilly to watch the entire thing. But there are some good clips on YouTube as well. But one of the things you, you said, Mike, is that every day can be a hack day. And I mean, part of me went, yeah, that sounds good. We can, you know, have a hack, build something cool in a day. And then my enterprise DBA hat, uh, you know, siren went off and went, wait, they're going to have things in production and touching my things. And, you know, I'm going to support this. And, oh, my God, I can't let that happen. So I see the allure of that. And I see that we need to move that way and, and cause and, and have cultures of deep experimentation even in large, even if you're a large, old, risk-adverse financial company. But, you know, as a professional IT worker, the same kind of experience that you have, I see technical debt, lots and lots of technical debt. I see things slammed into production. How do we ensure that, you know, we we have quality code, quality functions running in production? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, and I... I am a big fan, as, as you have seen with my videos, and, and there's actually one of the videos, if people are interested in this area, is, is, is one I gave at the serverless conference called Continuous Experimentation. Actually, it's called Serverless Plus Modern Agile, but it's really about this idea of how can we make it so that our product development becomes more of an idea, more of a reactive idea to what we're doing, as opposed to a preset, you know, you know nine-month plan of things that people might need. And because actually what we can do is, is try things out and see how people react and then, and, then, and then adopt. And sorry, this is a bit of a tangent, but this isn't new, right? Because startups have been doing this for a while with the whole idea of lean startup, which I, can't, I don't know how long ago that book was written now, but it must be nearly a decade ago. And yeah. <laughs> startups use this really, really successfully. So why can't enterprises? And the reason enterprises can't, and I'm, I'm, you know, there are legitimate reasons are for exactly the type of reasons that you talk about. Startups have no baggage, right? They're just they're, they're going from nothing, and you know they they have all this freedom. And when we have a larger company, you know we have stuff that we need to worry about that startups don't. And so 
Does that mean that experimentation is impossible? Well, no, it's not. It's just we need to think about it. To which questions like you asked, and there are many, many other questions as well. And my talk that I gave a couple of months ago sort of lists nine different questions, and there were a ton more. And this one wasn't even one of them. <laughs> so, but this sort of specific question, what do you do about tech debt when you are constantly experimenting, is something that my, my friend Dan North has been talking about a lot for a few years. And Dan, for those of you that haven't heard of him, has been sort of around in the agile world for longer than I have and in IT longer than I have. But he was one of the actual original sort of authors of behavior-driven development, which is a popular idea. He's been talking about for the last few years this idea of highly effective teams. And one of the thi- and this sort of comes from his experience with working with highly effective teams. And one of the things that he's seen is that highly effective teams are ones that embrace this experimentation idea. But what they also do when it comes to code and it comes to length of code is, for him, code should be of two types. One is it should be very, very new and very experimental, and it's it's in in our head. And the other type of code is super, super old and stable. So one of the things that Dan says on this front is he, so he has all of these patterns that he's been building up. And there's a link that I can give you afterwards that you can put up on your site onto, onto what he's been doing. So one of the patterns that he has is this idea called spike and stabilize. What he's basically saying there is it's perfectly okay to like build this experimental code that's, you know, maybe not your normal engineering quality. And it's, it's the, the goal of that is to, is to try out an experiment as quickly as possible. But once you've figured out whether that is an experiment that you want to keep around from a product point of view, then you need to actually stabilize that code. And so there needs to be within the team these sort of two modes of working with code. One is about really, really sort of how to get it out really, really fast. And one is about how to produce really, really stable code. And sort of he believes that most code in a a project is going to be super new or pretty old and stable. What you don't want is that stuff in between, which is been around a while, but no one really knows how it works. And so you should try and err towards, you know, sort of one end of the spectrum or the other, or you should err towards the two ends of that spectrum. Uh, he, he does say that when he, when he talks about these patterns, some are easier than others and require more maturity than others. And he does say that this is one of the harder patterns. You know, it does, it does need some people on the team that maybe have been around at the block a little bit just so that they can tell what is going to be code that you want to throw out and what is code that you, ha- you want to design for longer term. But no, it's definitely, if you're going to have this experimental approach, you also have to have not everything can be experiment. You can't be working just on experiments 40 hours a week. You have to do some stabilization there as well. But the point is that we don't, we shouldn't be necessarily planning up from what the stable code is going to look like. We should only stabilize what we know is going to be valuable through product experimentation. Right. So not slam it into production and fix up all the bugs in production, but go back and ensure, still continue to ensure quality, quality process, quality QA, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think, you know, we are putting stuff in production that is maybe, you know, that is an experiment. We want one of the points about the serverless stuff is that you can put highly scalable experiments in production in front of a bunch of users really easily and quickly. The point is that we should have a very clear idea what of that stuff in production is experimental and what is stable. Once we've we've seen that an experiment is working in production, working in a product manner, it's, it's doing what is good for our users, is good for our business, then we need to say, okay, we need to reshape this code so that we can support it for two years. 
because otherwise we're going to look at this code or whatever, these table structures in three months time and not have a clue what the hell we were thinking about. Right. Right. And actually that, that's one thing I've been thinking about as you've talked about the developers being able to quickly deploy all these very small functions running all over the place as a DBA and as a consultant coming into taking over machines under my care, I very frequently find things that nobody has any idea what they do. So are there any particular strategies that you recommend to prevent that? I mean, I still think that personally, I still think that having a good continuous delivery process is still key, right? And the good thing is that we can develop really rigorous software development lifecycle processes now in very, very little time. Myself, my business partner just did a, a training exercise at OSCON, O'Reilly's open source conference, where we did a half day training and we're doing another one in a few weeks time. And what we have everybody do first in literally the first 10 minutes of the training is we give them a code pipeline template, which is Amazon's continuous delivery pipeline. And 140 people create a full end-to-end continuous delivery pipeline in 10 minutes from scratch in their AWS account, right? Which is extraordinary for considering what we used to do, you know, two years ago. And, and, And some of this stuff is using technology that didn't exist even six months ago. But the point being, at that point, you have code in source control and you have a full fully audited continuous delivery process and you can see what's going on and you know what's doing, who's coding what. It doesn't cost very much in time and dollars to put that rigor in from the very first moment. And so, yeah, we can be launching these experiments in hours, but that doesn't mean that we have to lose all sense of our rigorous software process that we've built up through DevOps and whatever over over the last few years. Right. And I, I think that's key, right? If you're, because you, if you are enterprise, you need to adhere to those things. Maybe you have other compliance standards, you like socks or something that you need to like adhere to. So I'm sure that any auditor or compliance person listening, if there are any, will feel a little bit better. I'm curious as a consultancy, what are the questions that the, these companies are asking you? Well, there's always sort of two big questions we always get asked off the top. And they're very, very different types of questions. So it's fun to talk about them, both of these together. So one is, isn't this a whole bunch more vendor lock-in? Always the number one question. And there's sort of two parts to answer this question. There's this, this question. One is, with pure functions as a service, so Amazon Lambda, Google Cloud Functions, Microsoft Azure Functions, these are very, very simple pieces of code. And actually, all of the, well, certainly Amazon, and I, and I think the others are the same. I haven't sort of dug down too much into each of them, but they don't actually inflict this really heavyweight development model on you. You can write an Amazon Lambda function without referencing any Amazon libraries whatsoever. And so there's actually a pretty high portability of code. You can pretty easily take an Amazon Lambda function and run it in a different environment. That is not, that's not a problem. And so you could argue, oh, okay, well, that's, that's okay. And we've got no, no, no vendor locking questions here. That's fine. The problem is, is where do those Lambda functions run? And they run in the context of a public cloud. And they are, you know, they are hooked up to your Amazon API gateway, and they are going to be writing out to your Amazon DynamoDB or, or whatever it is. And so there is definitely a sense of lock-in about not necessarily each individual service that you're using, but the collection of services that you're using together. And how, how are those built out? And what features are you relying on in those services. So I just mentioned this video that I watched from Sam Newman that he gave a couple of months ago. 
and one thing he 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 stressed there, and I'm really glad he did because I've sort of said this a little bit, but I thought maybe I was just being crazy, but no, he Sam said it as well, so it must be true. Is that you know people say, oh, you know the the cloud, it's utility, and no, it really isn't, right? Utility is where you can swap one vendor for another and not even notice, apart from the fact that your bill changes. Most of these cloud services are not utility yet. Maybe, maybe on things like S3 and basic file storage. But there are a lot of functional differences, both syntactic and semantic, between the different cloud vendors. You know, you are going to be writing to different types of API. The actual literal functionality you get from some of these high-level services is going to be quite different across clouds. And also, you've got a bunch of data in there. And how, you know, if you want to switch cloud out, you know, that's going to be some some concerns there about data migration. But so yes, there are definitely vendor lock-in problems here. But these are the same problems that we're having to think about with using the cloud anyway. This is not a serverless specific thing. This is a cloud strategy thing. So maybe what serverless is going to force you to do is figure out what your cloud strategy is. And if so, then great, because the cloud is great and most companies should be using it and we should be knowing what our strategy is around that. You know, there are various schools of thought around whether you go multi-vendor or single vendor, and I'm, I, have, I have opinions on that, but at least have a strategy, at least know what you're doing, and you should consider serverless as part of that, but serverless in that case is, is no problem. If you're de- developing cloud-native apps that are using microservices and SQL databases, you're going to be thinking about the same problems that you're thinking about in terms of serverless. Yeah, I can see that, especially, well, it's funny, I do hear the vendor lock-in thing a lot too, but we're already locked in all over the place all the time. Like if you are a SQL server person and you want to be moved to Oracle or the other way, I mean, it's, it's expensive. I, I can understand trying to avoid it, but I wonder if we aren't causing many, much more pain by, you know, maybe not adopting technologies that can really enhance our ability to do business and are more, more importantly profits all in the name is because we're afraid to be locked in. Like if you're making enough money, you actually don't care. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a whole other podcast we could have on that. Yeah. <laughs> so That's fine. And I, and I have to. The, the other question that we always get asked, is, which is very, very different, is around testing. Uh, How do you do testing for this stuff? And that typically comes from the application developer type people, app dev type people, because, you know, over the last decade, 15 years or so, we've been building these automated testing suites, which is great. I'm obviously, I'm an agilist, so I'm a huge fan of automated testing. But we've been so used to being able to spin up these environments to do our testing locally on our development machine, or at least in our very local development network, but more often not on on development machines. And that's become even more popular in some ways with containers, because you can spin up, you know, seven different containers on your laptop, and one is running your MySQL instance, and one is running your message bus, and one is running free services that you depend on that somebody else developed. And then you have your actual application that you're testing. You can do that all in Docker. And that's amazing. And that's one, of, that's one of the huge, huge benefits of Docker. There's no question about that. And so we've got used to being able to do all of this integration testing very easily on our own machines. And so what happens now with serverless, especially with things like functions as a service? So the testing stories, again, there's sort of two parts to that. One is pure unit testing of functions as a service functions is actually really good for the same reasons I just gave for vendor lock-in. Because a very, very lightweight programming model. It's not like the old days of app servers when we were running in WebLogic and WebSphere and all that kind of stuff where it took three minutes for your app container to come up. You know, writing unit tests for your functions as a service code is super easy as long as they are true unit tests, which means that they're not relying on any external dependencies. 
And if you can't write a unit test like that, then you need to change your code so that you can run a unit test like that. The problem comes with integration tests and functional tests where you are dependent on these other components. And what some people have been trying to do is build more and more local stub versions of these services. And there's a whole open source project out there that's really impressive where you can run a lot of you know, stub versions of these things. And that's definitely a tactic. And there's, there's, there's a whole bunch of reasons why that could be the right thing to do. But it's not where our, our sort of instinct is anymore. And our instinct has changed. I don't like my new instinct. But my instinct now is to actually embrace the cloud for development time testing and not just for production. And so actually using cloud resources when you're doing all of your integration testing at development time. And, you know, people's reactions to that, there's a few. One is, but I want to code on a plane. And, and my reaction to that is, you're not doing that 98% of the time, so get that F over yourself. The other, the other reaction to that, which is, I'm sorry, that's me, I'm being somewhat harsh. I like coding on a plane too. That's why you should have a really great unit test suite, because then you can code on a plane, you can be pretty confident, and then once you've got access to an internet or whatever, you can, you're often running. So no, I like coding on a plane too. The real concerns are, okay, well, if I'm going to use the cloud, then isn't that expensive? And isn't that going to be a pain in the neck to use? Or isn't it going to be really slow? And this is where, so the path we've been going down with automation, sort of driven by DevOps, is so key. And we can use that stuff in development. So if we have a fully automatable set of environments that we can bring up in the cloud for development and then tear down again, then we can use that for development as well. And so that's sort of this nice virtuous cycle there where we're improving our automation for production and development. And the other thing is a lot of these services actually don't require any, any cost commitment. So if you want to bring up a Dynamo DB table and tear it down again, you, know, you don't care. It's not going to really cost anything. So our basically our, our, where we say on this is, yes, integration testing with serverless is different. Embrace the cloud. The one sort of caveat that we have on this is and this is sort of an AWS specific thing, but I'm sure the other vendors have, have similar things, is thinking about your isolation. So in Amazon, you have this idea of an AWS account. And one thing that I've sort of come to realize over the last sort of six months or so is an AWS account is not actually a billing construct, even though it's called an account and we think of accounts as billing constructs. It's not. It's actually a Uber container of technological components that happens to have a billing component to it. And if you think about an AWS account in that way, you go, oh, it's just a component isolation thing, then that becomes a lot easier. And it's got a lot easier to manage AWS accounts in, in that way over the last few months. They have this concept called AWS organizations now, which makes creating lots and lots and lots of accounts, all with the same consolidated billing, a lot easier. But that's definitely something that you need to think about because you want to isolate your production and your development, and you want to isolate your development from other teams' development. And part of that is security, and part of that is also, and this is, again, another little caveat, is some of these things have account-level limits. And so if you're not careful, you can end up affecting your production behavior because of stuff that you're doing in development and test. And obviously, that's a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. But then that's something I was wondering about as well. Okay, so we've talked a lot about the aspects of it and what it can be used for. Let's let's tie it all together for our listeners and toss out a couple of brief real-world business applications of using of using the tool. Yeah, totally. So one is I mentioned earlier, so I'll start with that one, which is Bustle. So they're sort of the poster child of 
having a web company using serverless, so they are a 100% serverless shop. They are a consumer website, so obviously they have a lot of JavaScript that they're running. That is calling a, a serverless backend. So all, their, all of their static content is hosted on S3. It's, they're using CloudFront as their CDN. And then they're using GraphQL, which is all implemented in Lambda, Amazon Lambda. And so in that way, they, they have this totally serverless infrastructure. And that's so you can build real life, high scale web apps and mobile apps as well, as in the mobile backend, the server side backend to mobile apps is absolutely doable and people are absolutely doing it with serverless. And so that's the sort of the, the you know, the, the, the more traditional synchronous application model that we think about an operational system like that. The other sort of side is backend data processing, which is what we were using it for at our old company and, and other people have come out and been speaking about this as well. So it was a great talk at AWS reInvent where a section of it was from Hearst, the online publishers. And they were talking about how they'd actually been at reInvent the previous year and they talked about how they'd completely re-architected their system. And then they were at reInvent last year and they said, oh, actually, we just completely re-architected again. And now we're using Kinesis and Lambda and we have this whole data pipeline where we are doing we have all of our source data coming in the top, and then we're doing various stages of, of pipeline processing and ETL and all that kind of stuff. And we're, we're implementing that using trigger-based functionality as opposed to always on servers or, or, cron, or cron applications. And they were finding it incredibly successful, which is exactly what we found as well, for various reasons, both for costs, but also for the, the speed of which you can try try out new functionalities is, is so much faster in using this kind of technology. And then you can target all kinds of interesting things from that. You can target your, okay. your Redshift database, or you can target a big S3 bucket and then put whatever you want on top of that. You can export that data to you know, a partner. So there's all kinds of ways that you can sort of target that data pipeline. Okay. It makes sense. I think we're coming to the end of our exploration of the technology. Is there anything else that I didn't ask you that you wanted to mention? Yeah, and I think especially for, for data folks, you know, serverless is mostly known for compute, but serverless data is as important in my mind. And that comes in, you know, through things like Kinesis and Dynamo, but we're also starting to see these sort of serverless data analysis products. So Google have had Bigtable for a while, but Amazon just introduced this system last, last year, the end of last year, called Athena. And Athena allows you to write SQL queries against your data that's stored in S3 and not run any servers. So you're not running a Dynamo server or a Redshift server or any of that stuff. Oh, sorry, you're not running a Redshift server or a Vertica server or something like that. You're just using Athena, and Athena builds by how much time it spends querying your data. And the theme is pretty new. Google's actually been doing this a lot longer. But this is really fascinating. This whole idea of serverless data analysis, I think, is, is huge, especially for, for, you know, for ad hoc querying. I remember what, the stuff that we were using at my old company. I actually, since I left there, they actually switched to using Athena from what they were using before. And it's been way, way more effective. So I definitely recommend you know, folks that are sort of more on the on the data analytical side of data, check some of that stuff out. There was a talk that Lynn Langick gave at the serverless conference, although she's big in this world anyway, so a lot of folks listening to this might already know who she is. She gave a great sort of overview of Athena. And there's some really, really exciting stuff happening there because data warehouses and data warehouse tools are those things that you know require that have traditionally required so much upfront commitment. 
you know, you're signing large licenses and you're, you're setting up machines that are going to be expensive to set up and tear down. And if we can start bringing these ideas of low commitment, very elastic resources to large scale data, that's going to open up a whole new bunch of opportunities for people doing data analytics. Good point. I did see that uh, YouTube as well. And folks, it'll be in the show notes. It's, I agree with Mike. It is definitely worth looking at. And you see the trends in some of the other cloud-based technologies where they're starting to separate storage and compute. And that is the whole, I think, the whole strategy, which is going to be interesting. I, as a DBA, I spent a lot of my time yelling at users for taking all my resources. Now I think there's going to be a finance officer, you know, running around the floor, you know, charging back departments. And do you know how much that query actually costs, which is a it's an interesting spin on business and management. So very good point. So Mike, as always, we like to end off with the lightning round. And that's where I ask you a couple of questions and ask that you, you know, try and throw out the answer that first comes to mind. Are you up for it? Oh boy, let's do it. All right. What project are you the most proud of? Oh, what project am I the most proud of? Interesting. Huh. I think, you know, in some ways projects sort of in you know the open source world is sort of something that comes to mind. And I I I did co-lead a, a continuous integration server thing called cruisecontrol.net back in the early mid-2000s. And there was some stuff there that we did that I think was sort of the first time people had done it. And you see that now in all CI tools. So that was fun. I was like, yeah, I think we, I think we did good on that. And that's, you know, to, to go and look at stuff now and say, yeah, that, I can point to the code that we wrote 15 years ago, whatever it was now. No, probably not quite 13 years ago. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's, that, that was the first time that had been done. And so, yeah, I'm pretty proud of that. I mean, I'm also proud of the, the stuff that we did at my last company that was on nothing technical at all, but was really on, you know, I, I, I swing between technology and pure management. And there was some stuff that we did at my old company around what are people's roles and how do people progress through their careers? And, and, I, and I wrote a paper on that about a year ago. That's proven really, really valuable in my company. I know that other people have taken what I did, and I was leaning on a bunch of stuff that other people had written, like Camille Fournier and James Turnbull had written this stuff before as well. And so this whole idea of how can we sort of start to treat engineering management in the same way that we've treated engineering open source, like, okay, let's put our ideas out there and let's build on them and, and iterate in the same way. Oh, those are two that are hard to compete with. That's that's for sure. I can, I can relate to swinging between, you know, people management technology. It's been my career too. Can you suggest a book that's made a significant impact on your career? And it doesn't have to be a technical book. Yeah, I mean, there's sort of a couple. I mean, the one that sort of, if I had to recommend a technical book right now, no question I would recommend the DevOps Handbook. It came out last year by my friend Jez Humble and Gene Kim, who wrote the Phoenix Project, and a couple of other folks as well. And, and I just, I actually don't read technical books very often anymore. I used to read a lot. I tend to sort of skim bits. Mostly I read stuff online. But I actually went through most of this book in preparation for, for a talk I was giving. And it's just fantastic. It, it really is the sum of a whole bunch of, of different conversations that have been having, that people have been having over the last 10 or 15 years. And I feel like I felt for a while now that DevOps was never supposed to be about tools. It was supposed to be about people and how people work together. And the DevOps handbook does a really good job of not being ranty about that and actually sort of expressing the people side, but also expressing the technological side, like what are the tech, because there, there is technology to DevOps as well. And so I think if anyone is doing anything with what they think is DevOps now, 
this book is is just truly extraordinary just to even just to dip in and out of so i would absolutely recommend that as a as a newer technical book the book that probably most influenced my my career was probably the pragmatic programmer which came out what 15 years ago or so ago and i haven't read it for a while oh Although also a book that massively, massively influenced my career was the original Extreme Programming book, Extreme Programming Explained, which I, that I do still read and that I do still dip into because I think that some of the stuff that Kent Beck sort of expressed in there is very much valuable still today. Okay, excellent. Standing or sitting desk? Yes. <laughs> I prefer one that I can move up and down, but I, in the end, I probably spend 90% of my time sitting. Yeah, I have to come clean. I, uh, that's probably me too. Laptop or desktop? Laptop. All right. Mac or PC? Mac. Although All right. not nearly as strongly as it used to be. I, you know, oh, I can relate I, to that too. You know, I was, if you asked me that question five years ago, I'd have been like, absolutely 100% Mac. And I, I did just buy a new computer and it is a Mac, but the software quality on Mac is not what it used to be. Alas. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. iPhone or Android? iPhone, but with the same caveats. <laughs> okay. What is the best tool or app that you use on a daily basis? And this comes into the iPhone question as an app called, you can tell everyone's going to be like, oh my God, he's such a manager. There's an app called OmniFocus, which is a, a productivity organization app on the Apple platform, although it's not made by Apple. And I don't know how I would organize my life without it anymore. It's just I'm so dependent on OmniFocus that, yeah, that's great. No question is that's that's my app. Okay. I'll have to check that out. That sounds like something I might need to. I mean, I think I have technology-influenced ADHD these days it is apple only which is a, you know one of it always used to be that i was a i was a mac person because of the apple so and an iphone person because the apple software now i'm a mac and an iphone person because of the non-apple software which is weird so <laughs> it's been really great talking to you today mike where can people find you if they would like to follow you or know more yeah, so our company website is symphonia.io. So that's a great place to go. And blog.symphonia.io is where we put all of our, our ver lots of writing and talks and things like this. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Mike B. Roberts. So that's most of what I put on there is, is, is from me. Some, some of the stuff is also on at Symphonia Cloud, which is our company Twitter, but I, I tweet a fair bit. Yeah, those are the best places to go. And you can always email me at mike at symphonia.io. Okay. And what Mike didn't include is if you Google search him and O'Reilly, you do find a number of talks and speaking events that you can watch. And many of them are well worth your time. Yeah. And the other thing, if you Google is, if you just Google serverless, then <laughs> there's an article that I wrote last year that's on Martin Fowler's website. And that's sort of, that's been incredibly popular. And that and, and the stuff that I've done with O'Reilly is sort of some good intro material. I also want to underline the Martin Fowler article. What I also liked is it had architectures and common use cases with some pictures that really helped me understand how serverless interacted with the database. As much as I wanted to really get into that in a podcast, it's a seeing thing and it's not a great podcast thing. So there are limitations of the medium. 
Well, that's all the time we had for today, folks. The biggest compliment you can give us is to tell a friend or write us a review on iTunes. What did you think about today's podcast? We'd love to hear from you at datascapepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks and have a great day in the Datascape. Navigating the Datascape.